In lieu of Tycho drums, the FCC of Cultural Appropriation has asked Writers Get Animated to read this message. Stay tuned! Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about storytelling and animation and dogs flung to the far reaches of Trash Island. I'm Chris Leva. And I'm Mackenzie Worrell. And today we're discussing Isle of Dogs, which is not I love dogs, but Isle of Dogs. I love... Did they do that on purpose? I'm pretty sure they did. I love dogs. Isle of... Wes Anderson's film, Isle of Dogs. I'm pretty sure that Wes Anderson was like at a point. He was like at a party or something and heard someone say, I love dogs. Like, hmm, Isle of Dogs. And this whole movie spawned out of that. I'm going to (laughs) guess... That that's exactly what happened. There's <clears throat> nothing wrong with that. That's just probably what happened. I, I think it's beautiful. And I think it was uh, an Instagram post that was like, if you say this movie title fast enough, it sounds like I love dogs. I love dogs. Thank you, Instagram marketing. Good job, folks. Um, <laughs> but looking through this, uh, we wanted to hit a couple of things about Wes Anderson as a storyteller and what his visual and storytelling chops do for animation. Um, Especially nice when somebody from live action moves towards animation and you see, you know, maybe their voice works better in this other medium. Since animation is not a genre, it is a tool. Yes. Yes, I would agree with that. (laughs) I feel like the... uh the people did Anomalisa would as well at this point. That's kind of one thing. So watching this movie, let's back up. Way long ago, we talked about um, Anomalisa on this podcast, vaguely in this podcast. Tangentially in this podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and basically the, the people did Anomalisa were like, wow, we're really surprised the Academy doesn't take animation seriously. We feel really offended. And they put out like a so-so animated movie. Um... <laughs> And it felt very much, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Wes Anderson's first animated movie, feels very similar to Anomalisa, where it's like this rough idea put on screen of a live-action director trying to do an animated movie for the first time. Except Wes Anderson didn't complain. (laughs) So there's a bonus there. (laughs) Uh, And then Isle of Dogs is definitely, I think, a stronger work than Fantastic Mr. Fox. It um, is better in terms of animation and quality and technique. I think it's overall a better script um, and overall uh, better acted as well. And I'm not sure if mm-hmm. that's just Wes Anderson. I'm, it's probably Wes Anderson directing because I'm sure like Bill Murray has voiced cartoon characters before. Garfield. I mean, how could we forget? <laughs> as hard as we try to. How could we forget? <laughs> No, but I I think that's true. And I think there's something that people, when they're going outside of the genre or the, um, not genre, the tools that they're using um, and go into something else um, and forget that there may be different rules or different ways of using those tools. So as an example, I feel like the best animated films are the ones that remember that they're animated films. 
that there are things that you can do in animation that you can't do in live action because it's animation. Mm -hmm. There are ways that you could tell your story. There are ways that you can build things physically. It's very tactile um, because it's, it's animated. Um, One thing that I would say it's, it's a lot like remembering if you're working on stage in theater, there are things that you could do there. And the fact that you remember that you're in theater and not in film it's what makes it richer when you remember, oh, I can do this because I'm in theater. I can do this because I'm in animation. Mm-hmm. It's just, and I think usually um, from what I saw of Fantastic Mr. Fox <coughs> trailers, um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like when I was watching it, it felt just like a live action film done uh, and the only reason that the, that they were done in it was done in animation was because it were it was animals and instead of having anything stylistically to do with animation it was just we're using animals so let's make it animated in a way yeah i think it had its moments and we'll talk a little bit about wes anderson and his style and like what he does with each movie a little bit later in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Fantastic Mr. Fox specifically was about capturing that Peter Rabbit aesthetic. And I don't mean the mm-hmm. new movie Peter Rabbit, which I'm going to skip intentionally because it looks terrible. It does. My, my, my mother-in-law was going to take my son to go see it. And then she watched a trailer and said, oh my, no, I can't take him to see that. And yeah, it's, like, yeah, the trailer. Yeah, please looks, don't. If you've ever read a Peter Rabbit book like Moha then the movie looks nothing like a Peter Rabbit story at all. No. Peter Rabbit's this rebel and teen who likes to party. Like, what? Who is this <laughs> rabbit? I don't know him. Um, but Fantastic Mr. Fox is kind of going for the same, like, half-clothes-wearing, like, weird lines that represent fur kind of thing, like, part human, part animal world style. So I think it was animated... For that, it was trying to capture like this childhood idea, but it wasn't being an animated movie. It was just trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or as I agree with you, this one knows that it's an animated movie and is doing things because it is animated. That's that's right. I mean, it feels and and not just that it's animated, but that it's um that it's stop motion animation. Yeah. So it knows there. There's difference between hand drawn and CG animation and um, puppet and you know all all these different kinds of animation. So you can do fun things like you could have clouds be made of cotton balls. You know you can feel the tactile nature of it, and that's part of that's part of its charm. And it is charming like the style and the way the characters are constructed it is charming even when a character has metal jammed in their head it's 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 a charming design am i wrong (laughs) you're you're not wrong you're definitely not wrong um i feel like we're all like tracy walker as seen in the trailer uh, the character Tracy Walker, played by Greta Gerwig, going like, dang it, I have a crush on you. But about Wes Anderson instead of Atari Kobayashi. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe aesthetic crush. <laughs> I. I don't know. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it because. In the end, this is the only Wes Anderson film I've ever liked. So. Yes, let's let's talk about that because you're not a fan of Wes Anderson. And to put this in context, I'd like to know what other Wes Anderson movies you've seen. Um, I've seen Royal Tenenbaums. Okay. And I think I stopped after that. So you've seen Royal Tenenbaums and I Love Dogs. I think so. Royal Tenenbaums, I feel like I gave it another shot. I feel like there was another one that was... Right around there. So I've never I've never seen Rushmore. I'm very sorry. That's probably fine. Yeah. What what's another one around that era? Um Life Aquatic and Royal Tenenbaums, I think were pretty Oh Life Aquatic. I hated that. I could see you hating that. Yeah, Life Aquatic was the one that sunk it for me. Uh sorry. That's that's the writers get animated. Bad pun alarm. That's kind of funny, <laughs> but kind of not. When you hear this sound, <laughs> and have a bite of popcorn. <laughs> um, it was a film, um, interestingly enough, that didn't go very deep. Um, oh There's not a lot of depth. No, you're cut off. You're cut off. You got one. You get one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry. I've been working with middle schoolers for two months. <laughs> Chris, you've turned into so. you've turned into pizza rat. You're offered a crumb, but you take the whole slice. <laughs> oh my goodness! So yes. Anyway, those I those are the two main ones that I've seen. Okay. Um, I feel like other people have said that I should watch others, and I just there are too many other things that I'm behind on to watch. That's Wes Anderson films. I think there is one more that you should see because it's it's not my favorite of his, but it's arguably his best. And I think it's most aesthetically and story-wise similar to Isle of Dogs. And that's, I'm sure you've heard, Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. I have heard. It That's the one to me that feels most like an animated movie without being animated except for like a couple diorama moments. And that's one thing that I notice as... The films have gone through. It felt like he was making animated films with real people is is what I was feeling. But I, I felt like, uh, how about this? Um, in, in those films, it felt like the characters were behaving in a cartoony fashion as opposed to uh, it, it was, they were being too heightened for what the world was looking like. You, you know what I mean? It wasn't stylized enough to make the characters as stylized as they were. It was trying to be real yet also amplified. And I feel like yeah. the stylization was what was throwing me off. It was a disconnect. And it felt like I felt actors, I felt the actor trying to be cartoony which is why certain live action films don't work. Now, if Royal Tenenbaums was done on stage, that may work. It would be an excellent you know. stage play, actually. It's a play within a play. So I, I, I just feel like something like that would have worked. I think it was the wrong medium. And if it had been done in animation, 
it probably would have worked as well. But I felt like there was the aesthetic that was fighting with the characterization and the acting. Now, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I agree with what you're saying, but I disagree with how you feel about it. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm on the opposite end. I am a Wes Anderson fan, but I am like unpartisan enough that I can say like Rushmore is not a very good movie. I said it there. <laughs> oh gosh, we make so many enemies with this podcast. I know, I know. But I do love many Wes Anderson movies. I think Royal Tenenbaums is actually one of my favorite movies ever made. I agree with everything you've said about it, but again, I disagree with how you feel about it. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine, Last Jedi. Um, we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's neither here nor there, but I did rewatch Last Jedi, and we can talk. I have other thoughts on that, possibly for a future episode related to animated Star Wars stuff. Absolutely. So let's t- <laughs> let's go a little bit deeper into Mr. Anderson's work. Zoo? Yes, work. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, his his work. So okay. <clears throat> um, and in speaking about Isle of Dogs specifically. So he said that for this film, he was influenced by um, Kurosawa films and stop motion. He called them animated holiday specials, which I think um, a lot of people assume to be the, you know, the Santa Claus is coming to town ones and the American Mm -hmm. stop motion. Your Rudolphs, your Frosties, your Misfit Toys. Yeah. Well, Frosty was 2D animation, so... Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Frosty, Frosty was 2D. Okay. But that kind of aesthetic. <laughs> very, very rough and ragged and, you know, I, I wouldn't say inexpensive, but they let... It was, it was, it was allowed to be crude, mm-hmm. you know... So that's that's where Isle of Dogs was getting its influence from those two things. Um, and then we get into the actual story. Would you like to explain the story of Isle of Dogs? Uh, I will try and boil it down to like the most basic elements. So there's a long prologue essentially explaining the whole background of the film. <laughs> so don't worry if you don't understand what we're saying here because the first 10 minutes of the movie will tell you what has happened. Um, essentially, something, 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 ancient Japanese fable, um, cats versus dogs, dogs won, and then this cat family is mayor of a city, um, and essentially there's like a dog disease outbreak of like, what are they, what are they caught? Snout fever? Snout fever, which is a great dog name. Not just for dog disease, but like a dog name. My name is Snout Fever. It's like if a dog were a drag queen. Um, <laughs> Different film entirely. <laughs> or is it? Um, <laughs> so then you have all these dogs um, in this Japanese city, and essentially the mayor proclaims that they're going to get rid of all the dogs. In a show of good faith, he gets rid of their family dog first, and they ship them over to this island off the coast called Trash Island, which is fittingly filled with trash. Um, and so some time passes of unknown amounts. I don't think very long, but in dog time, it's a long time, I think is what they're going for. Um, 
So all the dogs are living on Trash Island and like starve for food and not doing great. And then the little boy, the son of the mayor, is misses their family dog and wants to find their dog. And all the dogs on Trash Island talk about how much they love being domesticated dogs, except for one, played by Brian Cranston. So you can imagine from there. Yes. Um, and then the boy comes over to rescue them, and there's some politics drama in the background on the mainland with the humans, and the dogs find the little boy who gets a piece of metal stuck in his head, and they agree to help him find his dog. So they go on a journey across Trash Island. They have to see an oracle played by Tilda Swinton, which is magical. Um, oh, yeah. Mm, I've changed my favorite thing to the oracle. Okay, spoilers. My favorite thing is the oracle. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, the dogs get separated. Brian Cranston and the boy are stuck together. Some family secrets are revealed. Um, in the end, all the dogs go back to the Japanese city. And things happen. So, um, I know it sounds like a lot. And it is. And in the film, it all makes perfect sense it does it's just new new plot points happen every couple minutes yes every couple minutes something new is added in terms of a problem or something you should know or something that influences it's just revelation 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 um something getting uncovered something getting uncovered a new plot oh now now we're poisoning this and now we're doing this and this person dies and this person is going after this and now and yoko ono's at a bar and yeah, it's it's a lot hap there is a lot happening, but you're never lost. Yeah. I mean, I I'll admit your description of the plot, I was like, oh yeah, that. Oh yeah, and that. Oh yeah, that it that did happen. And and it's that's what it felt like thinking back on the movie. But when you're watching it, the way that it's told, everything makes perfect dramaturgical sense. For the most part. Yeah. It's it's a good ride. It's just hard to... There are so many arcs that feel like the central arc in the movie. It's hard to recap the movie just because, like, yeah, it's a good ride, but there's uh, lots going on. Because you're either following... Okay, let's, let's talk threads. Let's do this. Um, not just clothes, but threads. So plot threads. If we look at things... The first thread is the idea of cats versus dogs, mm -hmm. just as an overarching theme, which is better. And this evil cat-loving family wanting to eradicate dog kind since the beginning of time, almost. Yeah. And so much that they have a fable about it, which is about seven minutes too long, I feel. <laughs> um, as beautiful as it looks. It's just, it, you know, it's, there's a lot to it. So that's one thread going through. Is Then there's the next thread, which is the corruption of government, you know, and, and the government process and who's getting elected and how they're elected and the lies to people and propaganda and all that. That's another thread that's going through. The next thread is family drama. So between... Um, one of the main characters, and I had to say one of the main characters, Atari, um, who following through his life with, I thought it was his uncle. 
I thought Mayor Kobayashi was his uncle. Is it his uncle? Oh, yeah, because his parents died in a car crash or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that's so how he fo- got the dog. Yes, okay. Yep. Right. You're so correct. it's it's following him and his quest, which should have been the main, his quest for his dog, Spots. Played by Liv Shriver, I think it was. Um, and then we have the pack of dogs stuck on Trash Island and their survival and the way they survive as led by the aptly named Rex, um, leader of the pack, though not leader because it's a democracy, so they all get to vote on everything. They're a pack of alphas with their names, which uh, no one laughed in the theater except for me, I think, when this happened. It's like, you're Rex, you're King, you're Duke. Like, uh, they're all... You're boss. Yeah. <laughs> you're chief. Like... <laughs> They are all alpha male dogs, but I mean, their their names are alpha male dogs, but they're definitely not. Oh no, no, no! Dogs. None of them are really alpha males when it when it comes down to it. Seeing as how Rex was spoilers, the runt of the litter. So, but on Trash Island, you know, everybody you get a new life every, on Trash Island. Yep. Trash Island reveals who you really are. <laughs> and then the plot that I need to even talk about is there's the whole like Greta Gerwig, like American exchange student trying to expose government corruption, but also falling in love with Atari from afar. Which is one of my major problems with the film. <laughs> I, I didn't have necessarily trouble with her as a character. Um, I had trouble with her... St- having a crush on Atari at the end. Just like, oh, I have a crush on you. I mean, it's very Wes Anderson for, for someone to develop a crush from afar. And I'm totally all about that, but I kind of wanted like a realistic, like, I don't know you, but you have a crush on me? Okay, that's weird. I kind of wanted that reaction. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. do they even speak the same language? Which is another theme through this, which is language and translation. It's a very huge thing. Um, the, the human characters all speak in their native tongues. So that means for the exchange student, she speaks English. But for all the Japanese characters, they speak in Japanese. And it's not always translated. Um, yeah. There aren't subtitles unless they are subtitles on a screen in the film. Um, so the mo- the movie itself does not have subtitles. It's subtitled if you're watching a screen uh, that has subtitles or if it's translated by somebody else, by somebody else who is translating for them. Played by the screen gem Francis McDormand. Right. So there's, it's, it's just different ways of, of language. And they, just for ease, I think they said that all the dogs' barks have been translated into English. Yes. So there is that. I, I don't... I don't know. Is there more to that or just that's a fact? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I thought... I was a little bit weirded out... Um, 
by them saying that at the beginning, but I'm glad they did because then I stopped looking for translations. Mm. You start you start watching the characters a little differently. You start watching action a little bit more. You start um, you're not so worried about reading the screen, which I know we've talked about on this podcast that. Sometimes it's easier to watch a dub version because you're watching the movie instead of reading the movie. Yeah. Um, so that that was nice that it made them think about language a little bit more. Yes, but I also they they thought about it in filmmaking. Um, I think with Atari on Trash Island because he speaks in Japanese like it helped boil down like his character to this very two dimensional, like he's looking for his dog spots. Cause all he says is he holds up the picture of his dog goes spotsu spotsu. That's all that he says most of the time. Mm hmm. You're like, hmm. well, I thought you were the main character of this movie, but this movie is apparently not about you. <laughs> yes. You're, you're right about that. You, he makes it. Hmm. How do I want to put this? Whatever Atari says, you understand. Yeah. As a non-Japanese speaker, mm -hmm. which is okay for language, but I don't know if that's okay for character. Like you know, he speaks in one word, and uh, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a philosophy on how different people speak to their dogs. But I speak to my dog in full sentences. I feel. <laughs> you know uh, when when. I mean, I'm just wondering if he only speaks Japanese, why did he name his dog Spots? Or was the dog named Spots and they um, gave him? Because if, if Spots was trained to be a rescue dog, um, you know, or, or trained to be a guard dog, then somebody would have given that dog the name while he was in training. So I don't think Atari had much okay, that's fair. Choice, choice to name him. Dramaturgical analysis accepted, Chris. <laughs> I'm just saying, if he was trained, then he would have already been named Spots, and you have no say on that because you're not. It's not a friendship; it's a relationship of necessity. It's a relationship of necessities. <laughs> Simple relationship of necessities. Um, so. <laughs> What what else do we have to say about this as we go through it? Well, I do want to talk about um, Rex as a character, because I think, and this spoilers if you haven't seen the movie, I think about halfway through you realize that Rex is the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I wanted to find, like, the acts and arcs of this movie, and I think they give, like, in a very West Anderson style, I think there are chapter titles. Yes, throughout. there are chapter titles. Yeah, so there's, of course, the prologue, which goes on for a while. Um and would you say that there are three acts? I, in the film speaking, you know, in, in filmic, I think it was told in a basic three-act structure. It's chopped into more chapters, though. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember um, how many chapters there actually were. I want to say I there feel are like, like there were six. Six? Counting the prologue? I think so. Okay. I think so. I'm trying to think of how many. I'll take a look, but why don't you keep going? Yeah, so I think it's important that we kind of talk about the arcs of this movie because it feels like <clears throat> maybe 
it's like three very different arcs that kind of come together. It's almost like an anthology film where some of these major plot threads we talked about early, earlier take the, uh, the forefront compared to other plots during different arcs. And like a third of the movie goes by like, oh yeah, this plot arc. Now we're only talking about this one. Okay. <clears throat> so I think there's the first act of Atari landing on Trash Island and getting the pack of alphas to help him and they go searching for spots. And then act two, you have Rex and Atari separated from the rest of the pack, and it's like their buddy movie as they get to know each other and trust each other. <laughs> right. And then act three is the dogs overtaking the Japanese city. And, and the revolution. Yeah, and the revolution. Hmm. I, would you agree with that breakdown? <clears throat> I think so. And um, I mean, it's told, I, I found it's told in four chapters plus the prologue. Mm. So, and I think it's the final chapter that, that feels a little bit, or the final act, if we're looking at it as three acts, which I think it's, it, it feels like three acts chopped into strange pieces. But um, I think that that final piece happens so quickly mm -hmm. that it's trying to tie all the threads together, forgetting about other threads that it started. And it just resolves things quickly, ties this up, ties this up, tie this up, tie this up. And now Atari's the mayor. You know, it, it just... <laughs> yeah. How does democracy like, work? Yeah. Don't you know that now he's this guy is out of power? Then it goes to his next relative, which is Atari. Congratulations, Atari. It's like, is that how that works? <laughs> does it go to relatives? Like, does it go to somebody's nephew and then they're the one who's in charge? Like, is, it's is a, that okay? It's a not because it's animated, but I do believe this is a kid's movie. So I don't have as much of a problem with that. Dramaturgically, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Wait. But so it's a PG-13 kids movie? I think so, yes. It's a PG-13 kids movie? I think it got rated PG-13, but Wes Anderson meant this for all kids. Really? Mm hmm Really? Yeah. I mean, do you want to jump to that now? Do you want to talk about uh, uh, Wes Anderson and what he does? And appropriation? Not 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 yet. Okay. Not well, yet. Because I, I, I want to work on these. I want to figure out these acts and story arcs. So okay. All the trailers do make you think that Atari is the main character. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there is the expectation, rightly or wrongly, that the male boy character is going to be the main character of a Wes Anderson film. Um. <laughs> But we get the the male dog character, Rex, who's the true main character. Which, if you have Brian Cranston in your movie, why wouldn't you make him the main character? So it makes it makes perfect sense. If you're gonna have Brian Cranston, don't don't make him play second fiddle to, you know, anybody else. Just let him go with it. Um I think the most effective part of the film is the first act after the prologue where we're learning about the dog's lives on Trash Island. I feel that 
it starts to lose its way once Atari comes to Trash Island, which is where the plot, so-called, you know, the, the main plot actually starts going. So when Atari arrives, it adds a nice thing, but it, it loses its focus, I feel, in yeah. some ways. For me, it was when um, Rex and Atari got separated from everyone else. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is the, the heart of the movie at its core idea and like what it's going after, and it lost me. <laughs> I, I think part of it has to do with Atari. Um, Rex is so well rendered as a character, and Atari is not. Mm-hmm. They were not equals character-wise. You know, you, you understand that something traumatic has happened in Atari's past, and you see the ramifications for that and his relationship with Spot, which is, or Spots, sorry, um, which was really interesting. But then you don't see that same kind of character once he gets to Trash Island. It's just completely overshadowed. I think in order for it to work, we need to see that there has to, this sounds so strange to say, but there has to be mutual respect between Atari and Rex. Yeah. Like that's, that's the understanding that comes at the end because they're sitting, the owner and the dog are sitting together in these peace talks at the end. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's what it comes down to is they're equals. And you don't get a sense in that period of time that Rex is getting an understanding and a respect for Atari, it seems a little strange that yeah. they come together at the end. He just kind of like, Atari wants to do dog stuff with Rex. And Rex is like, don't throw that stick. Don't throw that stick. All right, I'll get it this one time. And just like, over the course of doing dog things, becomes like a dog, a people dog? Yeah. What's the opposite of a dog person? Yeah, what's the op- Domesticated. Yeah. I was going with not dog person, but people dog. Yeah, he's a people dog. He's a people dog. It's like when today Jack was playing with a spider and I was playing man, spider, man, spider. (laughs) The spider became a man instead of the opposite way. (laughs) Does whatever people can. It's Um, the order of adjectives. That's just how adjectives work. (laughs) So I, I, I just think that that relationship, because of Atari not being as well drawn, um, was was what drew me out of the film. Mm-hmm. And then so when things tied up, I was like, but what, what, why are they together in the first place? Why are they together and why is that a good ending? You know? Yeah, it... I'm trying to think of how to say this. I do like this movie. I know we're like criticizing a lot of like the heart of it right now. Um, I do like Isle of Dogs. Um, it kind of feels like... So in other Wes Anderson movies, for example, Royal Tenenbaums, like the heart is drawn out of like the lack of emotion that characters express and their lack of ability to um, express affection for each other. That's where the heart comes from. And mm. this movie, it's like the characters are expressing emotion to each other, but there's no reason why they're doing that. Yeah. I feel like 
Here's here's one thing that you get. You get in this scene where Atari meets Spots for the first time. They start by saying their names to each other. And then you get Atari revealing things about himself. And then Spots saying, yes, I understand. I can hear you. I can hear you. And they both start crying, right? Yeah, it's like the weird translator thing. Right. So there's this understanding behind everything in that he sees, Atari sees Spots as someone he can speak to. And so it's not so much a master-dog relationship. It's friendship. It's family. And it means more, which is why, of course, he steals a plane and goes to Trash Island. Um, Logically, yes. Logically. That's that's what I would do. Um, And then... When, we, when he meets Rex, it's like, oh, you're just a dog. But we don't see that shift of understanding to, wait, no, you are, <laughs> you're worthwhile. Like, you would, it didn't translate to, I respect dogs. I, I want, I respect spots specifically. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and that translation, that transformation doesn't ever quite happen. I agree, and those are all good points, and I think that points this film back towards that language theme you brought up, but we had no mm-hmm. um, more depth to <laughs> <laughs> So here's the depth. It's something about understanding across languages. Mm-hmm. There's something. We're figuring it out together right now in this podcast. You're listening to it happen real time. And again, as we've said, I enjoyed this movie. <laughs> yeah. I did, and it's... You know, after some time seeing it, sitting with it and thinking about it, like in the moment, you're not questioning. It Wes Anderson does a very good job at giving you enough story that yes, it makes sense at the time that you're watching it. You know, doing some reflection on it, there, there's a couple of other things that that I have questions on in terms of character, but. You're not questioning it. And I think part of that has to do with the tempo, Mm. with things are happening so quickly and there is a lot of action and a lot of external forces that are bringing upon the alliances that are made, uh, robot dogs and helicopters and guns firing and a chase sequence, you know, all these things that are, influencing them coming together that are external forces, but it's the internal that I think is what's missing. And it's when things quiet down, it starts to get. Yeah. Looser. And for me, getting back to fantastic Mr. Fox, I think the highs of fantastic Mr. Fox are higher than anything in this movie, because like there's these wonderful, weird, quirky emotions that you feel and are genuine in that movie. I think those moments are completely unrelated to the rest of Fantastic Mr. Fox, but they're there and they're really interesting. And the lows of Fantastic Mr. Fox are lower than Isle of Dogs, but overall I'd say that this one is better. It's Mm -hmm. in the middle, but it's better. Even though Fantastic Mr. Fox had emotions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So should we talk a little bit about Wes Anderson's the style that this story is told in now that we kind of 
broke through the story arcs, the main story arcs. And if you go see it, um, I would recommend to go see it. Follow Rex. Mm-hmm. Follow Rex. <laughs> I don't know why you're listening to this podcast if you haven't seen it, but you should go see it. Sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes you're helping people record this podcast and you haven't seen it yet. And oh, Nigel, no. <laughs> you like Wes Anderson sometimes too. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, so Chris, I'm interested in hearing what you think of the visual scene construction. Um, I'm going to say something that's going to sound like an insult. (laughs) To me or to Wes Anderson? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) So in a lot of ways, it reminded me of Ang Lee's film Hulk. Ooh, that does sound like an insult. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not because, uh, not speaking quality-wise, but Ang Lee thought about scene construction based on the source material being comic book. And... I think he went a little too far with it, of course, but, you know, scenes were constructed as if they were pages on a comic book. And in a lot of ways, looking at Wes Anderson's film, this, this Isle of Dogs, the thing that struck me the most is when um, you were getting, let's say you were the, uh, we were getting some of the backstory of spots being sent to the island. So in one corner, you get the shot of spots, um, a close-up on spots, and then you get a map with a blinking dot on a monitor of where it's traveling to. So you get to be a little bit, it's constructed, multiple things are happening. Yes, something's happening to the character, but also we get to see where they're going, what's happening to the character. We get to see a map. We get to see um, where we are. (laughs) We get to feel the geography and how big the journey is going to end up being. We feel place and time. So it's just the way it's laid out is just really, I can't think of a better word than fun. I I felt I really, that's when I started really enjoying myself after the, the prologue is told in a interesting way. Um, but once we get to the core of the story and we're, we're in silence, but we see things moving and multiple things happening, we're, we're seeing two places at once. Once that starts happening um, and there's some stillness, um, but I, I really started to appreciate the film at that point. I think it was that shot of Spots first going there. To, to Trash Island that I said, okay, I'm on, I'm on board. I, I under, like, I'm getting this. Um, the opening with the drummers, I was a little bit like, what am I watching? Um, but <laughs> once we got that shot, and I wish I could get a, get a screen grab of that, but it was like, that's, that's where I started buying into the film. Have you seen the... Um YouTube channel, Honest Trailers, video, every Wes Anderson movie ever. 
Yeah, I sent that to you. Did you? Okay. So I watched it <laughs> right before going to see Isle of Dogs. Um, and it's a funny video, especially if you like Wes Anderson like me, because you're like, this is all right, and I knew this, and I appreciate that people hate it. It's also funny if you don't like Wes Anderson, and you see, yep, there's it. <laughs> yep. That's it. So it's like, yeah, Wes, every Wes Anderson movie has, like, symmetrical shots and people who lose eyes and people who tell stories within stories and like dramatic music where characters look really small in the shot and like the first shot of isle of dogs is a one-eyed dog in a symmetrical constructed shot really small at the bottom of the screen telling a story <laughs> check like, this will only be better if he's voiced by a wilson brother it wasn't <laughs> It's like, oh, I feel very attacked five seconds into this movie. <laughs> so, yes, there is a specific style. Um, and I think that a lot of this visual scene construction also goes into the, not very prominent, but it's there. There's a dialogue happening in the media about the cultural appropriation aspect of Isle of Dogs and whether or not it is cultural appropriation or cultural tourism. And for me, with the scene construction idea, it's, this is what Wes Anderson does. He makes movies that are aesthetically about a childhood idea of a thing. And mm. so he has a childhood idea of marine biology and a childhood idea of summer camp and a childhood idea of like rich people and dollhouses. Um, and this is a childhood idea of Japan. Mm -hmm. So I I don't I'm not gonna plant a flag on either side of this discussion. That's just it's like I'm not surprised we're having this discussion just because that's it's what it's a style. It's what he does. Like you see the bits of like almost Godzilla movies and like watching Japanese movies without subtitles on and the taiko drumming and I don't know. I think I found a good quote from. BuzzFeed. That's right, I said it. From BuzzFeed. Um, <laughs> Alison Wilmore was writing about the movie, and it's marked by hodgepodge of references that an American like Anderson might cough up if pressed to free associate about Japan. Taiko drummers, anime, hokusai, sumo, kabuki, haiku, cherry blossoms, and she does rightfully point out a mushroom cloud. That's a little problematic. Um... This all has more to do with the insides of Anderson's brain than it does any actual place. It's Japan purely as an aesthetic. Yes. Now, I did... I did read an article. I did read through an article, um, which we'll post in our show notes as well, which is, What Isle of Dogs Gets Right About Japan. Mm. Um, which mostly is to do with language and the characterization of language and dialects and some of the forms of reference. So um, they, they talked a lot about the, which we'll talk about too, the white savior complex and other things like that. Um, there was a critic who called the movie first reaction yuck second reaction yawn <laughs> like ouch 
Um, I did not feel like that at all, but um, <laughs> they were talking about, uh, let's see, she says, even when the voices weren't familiar, they were distinct. Someone, if not Anderson, then perhaps the actor Kunichi Nomura, who co-wrote the film, cared enough to ensure that the voices sounded pitch perfect as types. A scientist presenting her findings on snout flu spoke with the bored, clipped tone of every ponytailed researcher on Japanese daytime TV <laughs> um, in a scene that must have seemed an incoherent buzz to non-Japanese viewers. A doctor interrupts another's hushed importance during surgery with an equally serious goes a deadpan bullseye rendition of Iryu, a, the Japanese version of ER. No one else in the theater got it, but I couldn't contain my laughter. <laughs> So it sounds like there are, yes, there are perfectly valid criticisms of Wes Anderson making, using Japan as an aesthetic. And mm -hmm. I started feeling a little bit of Tarantino kill bill, you know, criticism there, you know, somebody who thinks that samurai films are basically all you need to know about Japan to to represent that culture. Well, you know what, Chris? I don't make films, but if I did, they'd have a samurai. <sighs> points? No? Yeah. Okay, yes, yeah, yeah, points. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> yeah, for me, and I'm not saying... Here's an example of what this, I think, equates to for me, and again, I'm not planting a flag on either right or wrong. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use a word that I don't agree with what this, how people use this word in this context. But I'm saying it because it perfectly illustrates the kind of thing that I think is being appropriated here and how it's being appropriated. It's like if Wes Anderson made a movie about um, the game Cowboys and Indians. Like it's a 1950s childhood idea. It's not about any actual group involved in that. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm. It does make sense, but then that's its own problematic thing. Because yes, he's I a, agree. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something about an adult making a childhood version of something because then it keeps everyone's understanding a childhood version of that thing. Chris, I think in this episode, I'm going to write it down. Episode 111 of Writers Get Animated, we have uncovered how systematic racism works. <laughs> <laughs> Shut it down, everybody. We solved it. We oh. know how it happens. <laughs> okay. And, uh, well, this is with that, thank you all as <laughs> always. <laughs> it's, and I'm not saying that Wes Anderson has set out to make a, a film that is systematically racist. I'm not sure that anyone does. Um, it's problematic. It has problems, but it's, it's cultural tourism. It's like appropriation light. Yeah. Now it's zero calories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as somebody who just directed a middle school play of Peter Pan, I mean, cultural appropriation and representation of other cultures. I understand, you know, mm -hmm. I have, understand um 
So it when you, when you when you make some culture a fabulized version of themselves. Like it's one thing to say, ah, pirates, great, trolls, sure, hobbits. You know, you you create these creatures, but then you you create the well. I'm not talking about actual Japanese people. I'm talking about the idea of Japanese people. Here's the difference. It's it's, it's a story. It's the difference between a story about pirates and a story about Somali pirates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I say, the second one, you're like, oh, this is already a problem. <laughs> so it, when, it, when it turns a culture into a, a fabled version of itself, I think that's where it starts to get. That's, that's where you're getting into some trouble. It's like, no, it's the idea of Japan and the idea mm-hmm. of... Uh, it, it brings back when our conversation about Coco, you know, it could have gone one, it could have gone one very bad way if they're like, no, it's like, it's like Mexico, but not like Mexico, but like Mexico, you know. <laughs> wow, that was the best impression of a white person I've ever heard you do. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm spending too much time in <laughs> around them. So I know I'm agreeing with a lot of things that a lot of people have said about this movie in both directions. Um, I did, I wish I could give credit. I'm not sure if I can find it real quick. Um, I think I said on Wikipedia, so I'm going to cheat and use this as a reference. I hope this is the real quote, not to someone writing on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, do, 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 do. Uh, I can't find it. I can't find it now. It's probably on there. Um... But I feel like one reviewer said that it's it's not a movie. They're not they're not trying to. I've already lost the thread. It's um, <laughs> it's they don't want to s- draw a line in the sand about like what is cultural appropriation because without like some degree of appropriation, how do we? evolve stories and have our cultures come together and that i also agree with but i do think that this kind of isle of dog starts to veer a little bit into the too much of like the japan as aesthetic like putting it on a pedestal territory mm-hmm. but like just a little too much yes i agree but i liked it i liked it too it's it's well worth seeing. Yeah. <laughs> well worth seeing. A little problematic. I think that's basically the end of most of our conversations on this show. Yeah. It's well it's worth a watch, but it's problematic. Mm-hmm. We'll have to do like an episode at some point of like what things to Chris McKenzie, what would we put on a list that we would recommend you see that we have no problems with in any context? What's just a perfect thing? I don't think we have any of those. I have problems with everything, I think. So that's 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 part of being uh discriminating and enjoying enjoying the form. So 
Well, Mackenzie, did you have a favorite thing from Isle of Dogs? I did. I, I, uh, I'm going to cheat and say too, because I already spoiled earlier that my actual favorite thing while talking about this, I realized, is Tilda Swinton as the Oracle. <clears throat> um, well, I, I did a race. I, I had originally written the Oracle, and then I deleted it and wrote something else. <laughs> okay, so we have a joint favorite thing, and then we each have a favorite thing. Yeah, okay, that's great. Both of my favorite things, I think, are playing with the idea of, like, this is a movie where we have talking dogs, but it's playing with the limitations of what a dog can do. <laughs> and so Tilda Swinton's the Oracle, like, they go to see the Oracle, like, she knows everything because she can understand TV. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's cute, I get this. My other favorite thing is, there's, like, a, a red herring at one point, <clears throat> and they know that Spots was dropped on the island in this cage. They show the scene that Chris loves, where he's in this fancy cage, they put him on Trash Island, and then it cuts away. And then later, they go find the cage, and there's a dog skeleton in it. They say, oh, sorry, we couldn't open the cage. <laughs> <laughs> well, movie, you're completely correct. That's, uh, that's a good red herring. I would not expect a dog to be able to open that cage. <laughs> <laughs> it was really horrifying. <laughs> what was your favorite thing, Chris? Um, beyond the Oracle, which just the face the Oracle makes is she's watching news reports. This like pug basically with huge eyes, just staring at a TV screen, um, was every time there was a huge fight that things just erupted into cotton balls with limbs coming out of it. Like Looney Tune style, but stop motion animated. But yeah, so you could feel the cotton strands and see them moving around. I'm like, ah. Oh, that is just so great. <laughs> like, that's it. So it didn't have to be violent and real um, in that way. So it, it just, it could have stylization. And I was like, oh, it, it knows that it's made out of materials. And it knows that these are puppets that are not very big. And you could just use cotton. Like, yes, thank you for remembering that you're an animated film. Thank and you. I think it, it's a very specific technical challenge, too, which I also respect, because, like, you could think about if you're animating a Looney Tunes scene and they erupt into a fight and you're drawing it, you could think about how to draw, like, a like a cloudy dust ball fight thing with, like, limbs poking out once in a while and, like, people going, hey, yikes, <laughs> and some sound effects. And then you have to stop motion animate that. And just think right now, like, how do you stop motion animate that? How often would you like comb the cotton between scenes to change like how the cotton's configured. How fast, how many frames and shots does it take for a limb to pop out and pop back in? Do they do it in sync? Do they all go on their own schedule? How do you coordinate all this? I would love to see like the choreographed notation that is pages and pages long for how this fight worked. <laughs> ah, they so bumped good. the lamp. They're showing off. <laughs> all right. Well, should we talk about next time? Yes, let's. For your homework, we are continuing with part five of our multi-part look into the Disney canon. So, well, not the, like, film, the, the film canon. The film canon. canon. <laughs> Where they finish um, a movie and they shoot it to theaters around the country. <laughs> well done. Um, and we are looking specifically at the period of time that a lot of people have been waiting for, which is the Disney Renaissance. So from the time of 1989 to 1999, 
a decade of near animated perfection <clears throat> in some ways uh, <laughs> from the Walt Disney Company. So we are actually looking at the two films that bookend this period in the Disney canon. We're looking at The Little Mermaid and Tarzan. Those are the bookends. Um, I don't know how far some other people would put the Disney Renaissance. Some people end it at Milan. Some people end it at Pocahontas. I end it at Tarzan. You end it at the end of the movie musicals, like a normal person yeah. would. Yeah. So it ends at Tarzan, because following Tarzan comes Fantasia 2000, which is a different beginning of a different era of confusion and identity seeking once again. But let's talk about where they figured stuff out for 10 years. Aha, we tricked you listeners. You thought we'd do Beauty and the Beast again, or Aladdin, or The Lion King, or Mulan. We're doing none of those movies. <laughs> um, so if you're interested, you could go back and listen to our Beauty and the Beast before you listen to this, because I won't talk about it now. Yeah. Because I won't talk about it now. So, next time, Little Mermaid and Tarzan. As always, we want to say thank you to Nigel Cortino, our engineer, and thank you to Jacob Reed for our theme music. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash WGAnimated, um, on Twitter, and tell us that we're wrong about cultural tourism, um, or that you can congratulate us on solving and figuring out the origin of systematic racism at WGAnimated. And you can find all of our show notes and links on writersgetanimated.tumblr.com. And if you like us, um, because you probably just searched the podcast store for Wes Anderson titles and you found our episode, uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast listening service you use that offers reviews. There's probably others. SoundCloud? Overcast? Overcast? Do they have reviews? I don't think so. We should know more about this. We should. <laughs> Good night, everybody.